I've done it. This show's part of the COBOL Broadcast Network. <laughs> Bloody kobolds. This show is part of the Goblin Broadcast Network at gbncom.com. Follow the path. The Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Bears Grove Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to get rather crunchy. But I'm hoping that exposing some of my thought processes will spawn thinking in your situations and help your role-playing as a storytelling art. We're going to go back into religion and gaming and talk a little bit about Theogenesis. And we'll discuss the next steps in creating a new role-playing game in the Game Designer's Workbench. And finally, I'll share a brief White Wolf moment and then we'll have some listener feedback with you. But first, a few news and notes. The Dragonkin Podcast has a new episode up, and I encourage all of you listeners of the Bears Grove to go over and sign up for the podcast feed. If you're interested in the topic of kids and gaming, this is the place to go. I plan on releasing more kids and gaming content as time goes forward, and on this episode, Bill Walton of The Escapist interviews his two lovely, intelligent, and talented daughters, Agent A and Agent N. So, go check that out. I've been really enjoying the stories out of Escape Pod lately, and if you are a listener of the Bears Grove and haven't listened to the stories at Escape Pod, I urge you to go right out there and listen to them. They are awesome. They're currently podcasting all of the Hugo Award-nominated works in the short story category, and these stories rock. The Bears Grove new website, bearsgrove.com, is up and running. Special thanks to oneandone.com for making the transition extremely easy. I've got my own WordPress uh, set up there, and I'm going to start integrating all kinds of cool things, and there's a brand new theme. So if you're going to bearsgrove.blogspot.com still, don't. Go to bearsgrove.com. Okay? Thanks. Those of you who have uh, subscribed to my feed with the FeedBurner feed, then you're fine. You're not going to have any problem at all. Feed.feedburner.com slash BearsGrove will still get you. In other news, the Bears Grove is no longer a member of the Gaming Podcast Network. I guess we were just naughty or something. I, maybe they took a dislike to us. I, I don't know. But they recently dumped us from their network ro- roster without a word of warning. Well, we'll sh- soldier on and f- or figure out what went wrong or something. Had no fear. I'd like to give a special shout-out to all my Second Life podcast listeners. I am Alexander Bassiat in Second Life. And if you want a Bears Grove t-shirt, just hunt me down in World and I'll give you one for free. Lately, a huge number of podcasters have started showing up there, not the least of which is Adam Curry and his crew, and the Comics Trip blogger, and the folks from Podcast Pickle. I've met a lot of neat people there. It's a great platform for social interaction. I hardly recommend it. And finally, in an unrelated to gaming but still important note, my life partner, Cynthia, has started a podcast of her own. You can check out her podcast at vibrantliving.com. That's like vibrant living, but with an F. She goes into a lot of detail about living with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, and her podcasts are short, encouraging, and inspirational. If any of you know anyone who has FM or CFS or any other disease with chronic pain and fatigue, I encourage you to have them check out the Fibrant Living podcast and blog. Obviously, we'll have links for this in the notes. Next, 
we have the religion and gaming column called Theogenesis. Theogenesis means literally the birth of gods. So why should we talk about the creation of deities? The creation of deities is a touchy subject for those people who live in fantasy worlds. They typically haven't had the Renaissance or the Enlightenment to help them think of religion and theology as an abstract thing. No, rather their deities are powerful and sometimes vengeful. They create miracles on a regular basis and there is no doubt who is in charge. But the question of where do the gods come from is a very important one to answer for your game stories because the answer to the question informs the basis of religion, which in itself typically forms the basis for culture and society. For myself, I knew that my players, being fairly modern and mostly agnostic, would never accept the concept of an unknowable, mysterious deity because they would want to know where these deities come from, I had to know as well. And what's more important here is that it had to be understandable on some level. In my own game world of Koronai, the gods have come from a number of different places, but none of them are the god, the so-called ineffable, unmoved mover, the utter source of all god things. It's not a transcendent deity. I'd like to emphasize here that the true origins of the gods are only known in the game world by a scarce few. And even those people still stand in awe of the power that deities wield. Nevertheless, because it has been talked about before, my players know the origins of deities, and so this colors their thinking about them. The way my game world is structured, much of the theogenesis in the world can be traced back to the Firewarian Empire. Now, not a lot is known about the Firewarians. They are meant to be shrouded in secrecy and mystery. In fact, I've made it so that their language is not pronounceable or understandable without a kind of magical experiential knowledge. Let's face it, the Firewarians are an ancient race that did a lot in my world. They created the fundamental structure of formulaic magic. Magic was second nature to them, and they put together a system of magic that even their lowly servitors could use. They are responsible for having initially created several of the sentient races on Koronai, the Cydalians, the Yerandani, the humans, the Agrim, all created to serve the Firewarians. This was done using an arcane and now lost art called life-shaping. There weren't a whole heck of a lot of Firewarians, so they needed these servitor races to survive and to thrive. And in order to keep these servitors in line, they researched what would eventually become the process of theogenesis. The first such created deity was a fairly enlightened but still self-centered Firewarian named Elorial Naltalantasas. Before that, he spent nearly a century unknowingly preparing for the process, traveling among the human servitor races, which were his favorite, getting to know them intimately and compiling stockpiles of information for guiding them in the future. He penned a massive work called The Measure, 
which was meant to be a holy book of a kind, a guidebook for the humans to do just about everything from growing crops to delivering babies and more. Plans on how to lay out cities and farms, how to tell the time of year by the stars and the time of day by the sun. Theogenesis was suggested to Aloriel by his master, who has remained nameless throughout history. The master knew it would be a dangerous process, but Eloriel had already proven the agility of his mind and spirit by learning how to relate to the humans. The process did not go well. Eloriel was born a god, however he immediately became unbalanced. Because the process, as it was understood then, required a lot of elemental light energy, Eloriel immediately fixated on the light as a power source and as a source of truth, the light shone through him, and as a result, he became the light. This was far too much for the Firewarian who was a L'Oreal, and the once mortal being died quickly thereafter, leaving behind only the consciousness of a L'Oreal. This consciousness was unstable as well, and split into two deities, the god Elor and the goddess Oriel. Some say Oriel was patterned after the ways and countenance of Kinara, a human servitor who was Eloriel's concubine while he was alive and who contributed to Eloriel's love of the human species. At any rate, the master of Theogenesis made sure Elor was introduced to the human servitors. That was the original point of creating him in the first place. Because the god was introduced several times in several different ways, different human communities saw Elor differently. In Amishka, the path that Eloriel had walked as a mortal man, and the book that he wrote, The Measure, became more important than the actual worship of a living deity, whereas in what would one day become the kingdom and city-states of Yar, Elor himself, in his hubris, demanded worship and fealty from the scions of the royal house of Yar, thereby instituting what amounted to a state religion. Two religions, so created by one person, a person who originally just wanted to aid his human servitors in serving themselves better. Once again, we see the theme of a simple personal choice having major effects on the subsequent history of the world. The observant person might notice that the Amishkin version of worship is more like Islamic law and the Yarian version is more like a transcendent Christian sort of deity. Next time, we'll talk a little bit more about the other two kinds of deities in my world, Bodhisattva types, and God Echoes. Next up, we have the Game Designers Workshop. Welcome back to the Game Designers Workshop. I've been playing with character generation and the rules for character generation for my new game. Last time I talked about how I was creating a brand new role-playing game because the structure and purpose for Dungeons & Dragons, which is the game I have been playing uh, for my fantasy uh, world, has not really proven in the long run to be exactly what I need. So I've decided to take the experiences that I've had in-game and translate them to a game structure that will support the kind of play that I like to do. 
And this is the second episode where I talk about this process. And I wanted to let you know a little bit about the character generation rules. Now, to my mind, it would be ideal if every game designer could just tell a player, oh, just write an introductory paragraph for your character, just like in fan- a fantasy novel, and have done. Let that be your character. But that can't happen. Players in my experience need more structure than that. So I've started the process here of narrowing down traits without overly limiting the player, keeping in mind the goals of the game. Remember, the object of this game is not to create some uber system or masterful GURPSified game mechanics covering every genre imaginable. The main point behind this game is to simulate well and flexibly the kind of RPG session that I've already had on a regular basis now. The fundamental building blocks of character for this RPG are facets, potentials, aspects, and nodes. A facet is an intrinsic value tagged with one of the five potentials. Action, life, mind, spirit, or magic. Each facet potential should be tagged with a descriptive word to help the player better understand his character. So, for example, an action potential facet might have the descriptor agile. A life facet might be called sturdy. A mind facet might be aware. A spirit facet might be intuitive. Magic facets are special, and we will deal with them when we start talking about the magic system. The descriptors have one in-game purpose, too. They can be used by the player to negotiate a change of circumstances for his character. If a character is listed as agile, then it's unlikely the character will fall on his face if he slips on the ice. As a result, it behooves players to choose descriptors which might sharpen the focus of their character. An aspect is somewhat trickier to describe. There are different aspects for each character, each tied to a different chapter in that character's life. At its most basic level, an aspect represents competence in a specific role, and all the talents, knowledges, and skills required to be competent in that role. Aspects provide bonus potentials to the character in addition to allowing them to choose specific abilities related to the aspect. The first, or natal aspect, is a collection of talent, skills, and knowledges that represent a character's initial background. Obviously, the natal aspect is fairly important because it has an impact on the physical competence of the character. In childhood, it's when most characters learn how to run, climb, jump, swim, and play. Also included in this aspect is a hint of the character's access to things like the basic everyday requirements of life, the character's social class in the culture, and so forth. The second aspect is called the vocational aspect and represents the competencies that a person has in order to deal with their life's work as an adult. Nearly every character who has attained adult status in a society will have both a natal aspect and a vocational aspect. However, the stars of our story, the protagonists who are player characters, might also have a master aspect. 
That is to say, a collection of competencies that are outside the normal realm of skills, talents, and knowledges. Further down the line, in terms of a character's development, a character might receive a special aspect, where they have gained specialized competencies, or goes as far as to receive a heroic or legendary aspect later on in their story. So there we have it, different levels of aspects, natal, vocational, masterful, special, and later on, perhaps, heroic or legendary. Sometimes a character may acquire competencies that do not re represent a major aspect of his character, but do depict a significant subset of skills or abilities. These minor competencies are represented by nodes, little add-ons to aspects that further illuminate the abilities of the character. For example, you might have the vocational aspect of farmer with a node of animal husbandry for someone who is not a shepherd, but who has taken care of plenty of animals. Or the vocational aspect of journeyman bard with a node of well-traveled, which represents a collection of survival skills and knowledges revolving around being on the road for a long time. Many people who learn languages that aren't typical for their culture have a note of language speaker for that specific language. Nodes should only represent a small part of the character. If it is a big part, then it should be considered an aspect instead. So, if you want to think about the old nature versus nurture debate, facets and aspects represent them respectively. Facets are your intrinsic nature, whilst aspects specifically your natal aspect, represents the nurturance of your culture and family. Each trait on the character, facets, aspects, and even nodes, add to total potentials. Each of the five potentials are totaled up and included on the character sheet. These totals represent overall competency in that potential area, which means that they can be used for comparison and to help navigate through plot conflicts. In addition, the character may choose to elect known abilities, one for each potential point in a category. Each ability is a specific function that the player knows the character can perform fairly well and accomplish with a reasonable amount of competence. The player may decide not to choose an ability for all of his potential points, instead choosing to name them further along in the story. Once named, however, an ability is fixed in place. Each ability must be associated with a specific potential total and must be associated as well with an aspect. So, a person with a vocation aspect of Journeyman Bard might choose an ability from the mind potential called Play Harp Music. After that, the player may assume his character will be good at playing music on his harp. The benefit to defining this specific ability is that the player no longer needs to negotiate with the story or have any doubt as to whether his character knows how to play the harp. That fact is established. This is not to say that he will be perfect at harp music every time he plays it. It expresses the fact that he is reasonably competent. Remember, it is a vocational aspect, not a special one in the harp, and all things being equal, he can expect to perform decently on it. 
be mindful that there will not be a ton of lists of abilities to choose from, although there will be a requirement on the storyteller of a game to keep track of the abilities that people name and thus create an individualized listing of known abilities for the characters as the story goes on. So, to sum up, characters have facets that represent their inherent nature, aspects and nodes that represent their competencies and potential totals to represent their overall strength in five important areas. Action, life, mind, spirit, and magic. These potential totals can be used to name specific known abilities of the character, which gives the player some hard and fast, surefire character function choices they can count on. And all of these traits go right back to a simple concept. That introductory paragraph of a character in a fantasy story. The character generation process is meant to simulate the same process I use to create a story character. On our next episode, we will create a sample character and then start to delve into how the conflict navigation system will work and maybe even get into a little of the facet potential systems. Next up, a white wolf moment. White Wolf was, when I was involved with them, and I suspect this is still true today, something of a bad boy among game companies. Now, yeah, we were all pretty much geeks and misfits, but we had Vampire the Masquerade, and Vampire made us cool for the time being. We were, to a certain extent, the rock stars of the gaming world. People I used to talk to online would intimate to me that we were somehow all fantastically rich, Sleeping all day, partying all night, never getting old, never dying. That was, however, not the case. Okay, yeah, when we did throw a party, we threw a party. Our Dragon Con warehouse parties are still legendary, and when we threw parties at Gen Con, our parties were known to be the place where the cool kids hung out. But that was just a thin veneer. We were just a bunch of geeks who really loved what we were doing and wanted to keep doing it at all costs. There were always dreams of making it big, being bought out by a major multinational corporation or some such, hitting Hollywood big time, and so forth. But for the most part, we were gamers writing, producing, and printing games for gamers just like us. I'm going to share with you a dirty little secret. If you don't already know this, the game industry doesn't pay very well at all. In fact, I looked back on my life at that time, and I'm blown away that I still managed to have a car, pay rent on an apartment, keep food on the table with the money I was making back then. Certainly, my family had to suffer quite a bit during my continuing to work there. It was really more the kind of job which someone who was young and just starting out might work. But the company did take care of us when it could, and the memory I want to share with you tonight is an extremely positive one. Whenever we went to conventions, we brought along a boatload of product to sell. Now, I'm not going to go into the economics of the gaming industry, but when you have printed product in hand, you make that product with a lot of costs built into the price. If and when you can sell a product direct to a customer, cutting out some of the costs built into the price, 
you can suddenly make a crapload of profit. Conventions represented those kind of opportunities for us. Even though it costs to bring people to the con, put them up in a hotel, and pay for their transportation, if we were assured of being able to sell enough product, we would go to the con. I remember once at Magnum Opus Con, back when it was run in Greenville, South Carolina, we had this amazing meal, and it was all on the company. My friends, there is nothing quite so sweet and intoxicating as wonderful food and drink purchased by the sweat of your own brow. Furthermore, we would do what was called tradesies, that is to say, we would be given a quantity of product we could use to trade for other things we wanted on the game dealer floor. At Gen Con one year, with my $50 share of tradesies, I was able to purchase a pretty crystal necklace, a custom-made purple baby Cthulhu, uh, several uh, cool game books, including the Amber Diceless role-playing game, some dice, and some Magic the Gathering alpha decks. And that sort of dates me right there, if you... I mean, back when they were selling alpha decks. At any rate, finally... Because it was cheaper sometimes to give product away at the end of the con, instead of shipping it back, sometimes we were able to be generous and just hand copies of books to people who are particularly good to us or helpful at the con. I really did enjoy giving books away. It is a special blessing to be able to be that generous and open-hearted once in a while. And even better when the person turns around and asks you to sign the thing you just gave them. Next up, we have our feedback section. Hello, Sam. This is Mick. You're in for it now, Buster. You want audio messages from me? Oh, I'll give you audio messages. Just as soon as I find something witty to say. <clears throat> See you later. Bye-bye. I nearly fell over dead earlier in the week because I received a voicemail message. I'm amazed still. I, I can't believe it. it I, it's from Simon. Whoever Simon is, it's from him. Here it is. Uh, hi, uh, Sam. Uh, my name is Simon, and uh, just leaving you a message to let you know how much I enjoyed... Uh, episode 16 of your podcast. Um, uh, episode 15, the generic one, I thought was a little too bland, and I thought you hit a nice balance in episode 16 with the music and the atmosphere and the content. So, you know, I much appreciate keeping, you know, the, that sort of style. Um, other than that, this was definitely one of the ones I enjoyed the most. I've listened to almost uh, probably the last... 10 or so, and uh, he essentially opened my eyes about how GMing, well, essentially how I could, how impossible it would be for me to be a GM, but uh, just the, the, the way you described Blackpool and the way you talked about the, the inspiration behind it made it seem easy, and it sort of, you know, just fired me up to try to I try to do something like that on my own. So um, 
I really appreciate it. I enjoy your podcast. I listen to it every time it comes out. And uh, just figured I'd throw you some feedback. Oh, and to throw my inspirational music in hand, I really get inspired a lot for movie soundtracks. Um, the last few that really got to me were uh, one that the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack. Uh, wow, it was just... I mean, as soon as I saw that movie, the music just really fired me up. Um, that and the Master and Commander series as well. That that one movie, the, just for some reason, just the the music they decided to put behind the sailing ships just really, uh, really is impressive to me. Um, that's it. So keep up the good work. I really appreciate it, and I'll try to leave you more feedback in the future. Bye. Thanks so much, Simon. I really enjoy the Pirates of the Caribbean and the Master and Commander uh, music. Um, I will put on the Pirates of the Caribbean soundtrack and just before game, and I'll get all juiced up and ready to go, and it's just wonderful. So, uh, and or if I'm stuck on a storyline, that's the first thing I go to. That and uh, Titanic stuff. I like. I love that that Vangelis kind of stuff as well. Um, a lot of uh, uh, Enrico uh, Morricone, who did uh, the Untouchable soundtrack. Wonderful stuff. So, uh, probably totally mispronouncing his name, but at any rate, um, it's a wonderful uh, thing to hear from you, Simon. And I gla- I'm glad that I helped you with some GMing realities. And um, in the future, I will continue to do so. Thanks so much. Okay, we're moving right along. <clears throat> Andrew Craig wrote in and said, Hi Sam, undoubtedly the best episode yet. The two new segments are awesome, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the next installments. For me, the Bears Grove has suddenly jumped up a level. Once again, though, I'd like to hear more actual play experiences in the advice segments. This is what happened in our group. This is what we did. We being the players rather than the characters. For me, that's a lot more instructive than a generalized list. Nice choice of music, too, by the way. Andrew Craig. Thank you for writing in, Andrew. I appreciate it, and we hope to continue to please you in the future. The feedback question of this week is, what are some of the most exciting moments you've ever had in the context of a role-playing game? Now, coming up soon in future podcasts, we'll have our pulp-style special podcast with a sprinkling of steampunk on the side. Watch for it. The Bears Grove calls for your feedbacks, kudos, and or participation. Send an audio file or email us at bearsgrove at gmail.com. Send an audio to us through the website interface. Leave us a voicemail at 206 888-2327 Leave us comments at the show blog at http backslash backslash bearsgrove.com Place yourself and send us a shout out at our Frapper Map If you enjoyed the podcast and want to help spread the word and keep the podcast going you got a few options Number one, you can tell a friend about us Number two, you can vote for us at Podcast Alley and make us a favorite at Podcast Pickle. 
Number three, you can hit the donate button on the website. Every little bit helps. The Bears Grove is a Fireheart Foundry podcast brought to you under a Creative Commons license. Attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use. The music from today is from the Podshow Music Network, a song called Dream of Freedom by 2012. Until next time, have sweet dreams when you get them. (laughs) 